Two and a Half Admins, episode 24. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, you've got a blog post to plug, Alan. Yes, over at uh, clarasystems.com, we have the next in our series, The History of BSD. And we're talking about the introduction of TCP IP. And trying to take credit for it. BSD doesn't try to take credit for TCP IP. They just take credit for making it good. (laughs) Honestly, BSD should be taking credit for making TCP IP a universal protocol because absent the BSD license, it would not have become one. All right, well, we'll link to that in the show notes, but let's do some news. There's been one huge tech news story that has crossed over into the mainstream over the last couple of weeks, and that is what's been going on with Reddit's Wall Street bets and GameStop and all of that financial market turmoil, seemingly. It seems to have calmed down a bit now, but who knows where this is going to go. Alan, you like to play with the stock market, so you must be pretty familiar with this. I was late to the party, but uh, looking at it, it was quite amusing. Jim and I were talking about it just a few minutes ago before the show. It was interesting to see how what they managed to do was basically an amplification attack, like the old denial of service attacks where you would send a DNS request to a server. The request would be small, but the answer would be big. And you'd spoof your IP address so that when you made the request to the server, it would send out this bigger response to the victim and you know, with a small amount of bandwidth, you would be able to cause a large amount of harm to the target. So in this case, it looks like Robin Hood and people buying the stocks in Omas was part of it. But I think what really made GameStop pop here was the use of the options. So one of the early people in this Reddit thread bought something like 50,000 or 80,000 call options for like April on GameStop. So this call option is basically a contract saying, you know, on April 12th or 15th, whatever the Friday is that week, for this amount of money, I'm buying the right to buy the GameStop stock at a price of $12 a share if it happens to be worth more than that. And if it's not, then I just wasted my money. Each option contract is worth 100 shares, and it costs like 31 cents at the beginning of the, the craziness. So for 31 cents, he bought the option to buy 100 shares of GameStop at $12, which those might actually still be worth something if by April the stock hasn't fallen back below $12. But the way the market works is the market makers, uh, the big financial houses in the background that are selling this option that the, this guy bought 50 or 80,000 of, then are like, well, that's a lot of risk that if the stock price of GameStop does go above $12, we have to sell this guy 80,000 times 100. So that's 8 million shares of that at the price of $12, and if there were $15, then we were out a lot of money. So it caused them to start buying the GameStop stock to cover the options they just sold. And so for $0.31, he could cause somebody else to buy 100 shares of GameStop versus him buying them themselves. Keep in mind, that's not the only amplification effect either. Um, You have to understand what Robinhood's actual model is. Robinhood offers no-cost trades to, you know, little folks that are making teeny tiny trades that normally would have significant fees associated with them. And the reason that they do that is because, you know, those little day traders, they're not the they're, they're not the customer, they're the product. Um, what Robinhood actually sells and makes money on is information about what those trades are. So bigger brokerages, uh, you know, purchase from Robinhood the information on what all these little folks are buying, and they'll make decisions on, you know, what to make big surges on based on what they think that tells them about the market. So now you've got these algorithmic traders that see that, you know, there's this sudden massive surge in game stock buys, you know, coming from these little traders on Robinhood, and they go, oh, we need to go ahead and make sure we get in on that. 
and now they make a ton of buys. And again, you know, you're, you're talking about the same thing that we were before, where it's an amplification attack. And feeding in from multiple different ways, right? You're, you're causing the market makers to buy them because of the call options. You have just the high-frequency trader trend stuff going off. And then also, you know, the other thing Robinhood is doing is basically the people they're selling their flow data to are basically what's doing uh, are doing what's called front running. So they say, oh, a bunch of people from Robinhood want to buy the stock. What we'll do is buy it 300 milliseconds before Robinhood executes that transaction. So if you put in an order to buy it at, you know, two cents above the current price to try to get it to clear, these guys can buy all of the shares that are available for anything less than that and then turn around in 200 milliseconds and sell you at the price you asked for and, you know, make a couple of pennies off that. But if they do that all day long, it adds up for them. And so all of those things happening together just had compounded this amplification effect and allowed, you know, like we said, a a relatively small number of people, as far as the stock market is concerned, to have an outsized impact. My understanding is that a lot of this started because the GameStop stock was shorted more than 100%. Yes. So the hedge funds had bet that the price would go down, but they'd bet just to a ridiculous extent that got them in massive trouble, especially when the price was driven up hugely. It's not entirely clear how bad the hedge funds bet was in doing those massive shorts because GameStop's not in a great position. At this point, it's really difficult to tell whether, you know, absent... Basically, you know, thousands of Redditors deciding that it was lulls time, it's difficult to tell whether that would have been a bad bet. But really, you know, what happened is they made this massive bet and a few influential Redditors were like, you know, hedge funds suck, screw those guys. Also, GameStop is hilarious, lol, stonk. And, you know, they start this movement to buy tons of it. So, yes, GameStop's value went up, but basically it went up as a side effect of Redditors deciding specifically, screw those guys. Uh, we're going to execute what's called a short squeeze. We're going to drive this value up specifically to punish them for shorting that stock. So a really simple explanation of, you know, what shorting a stock actually is, is you say, hey, Alan, I would like to borrow your share of GameStop. And Alan says, sure, have that back to me next week. So I buy it. And what I do is I immediately sell it for the going price. Now, when that share comes back due and I have to give a share back to Alan next week, I'm going to have to buy one then. So if the price of that stop has fallen next week from what it is today, I'll get to pocket the difference. I will have to buy it next week when it's time to give Alan his share back. But if that share value fell, I make money. On the other hand, if that share value rose, I'm still going to have to buy one and I lose money. Now, one of the really important differences to note between, you know, shorting stocks and the traditional, you know, type of investment most of us are familiar with, which you might call a long, which is just buying onto a stock and holding it and hoping that it appreciates and then you can sell it later for more than you bought it. The big difference is that when you're doing a long investment and you're hoping a stock appreciates, you can't ever lose more money than you spent on buying that stock in the first place. But if I should short a stock, like I borrow this stock and I immediately sell it and executing that short made me a thousand dollars immediately, but the value of that stock can rise any amount, you know, in, in the amount of time before I have to make good on it. So, you know, there is no real limit to how much you can lose in shorting a stock. If you short a stock at a dollar and the value of that stock rises to, you know, a thousand dollars when that comes due, 
you're going to be out a thousand times as much money as you made initially. Yeah, that's where the the real risk uh, with the shorting comes out is that unlike pretty much any other type of thing you can do is that the amount of money you can lose can be more than 100% of your money. <laughs> yeah, it's potentially infinite. I mean, not in practice, but it, there's there's basically no limit. People could have, in theory, driven that stock price up to a million dollars, and then they would have just just been totally screwed. And we, we saw that, didn't we? One of these firms actually had to fold as a result of this. Yeah. Uh, the other one that was really interesting is one of the other firms that needed to suddenly get a bunch more money to not be in trouble got that money from that company that's behind Robinhood that we were talking about. Yeah, funny that. So it says like, hmm, I wonder if they purposely made it worse so they could buy up half of this hedge fund for, you know, a cheap price. <laughs> and if you haven't come to the conclusion yet that Wall Street is in a completely shady place, I'd also like to point out that uh, if you lose on a short, you always have the option of doubling down. You can short that stock again. And now you can take the freshly borrowed shares and you can pay off your initial short with those shares. But now you're hoping, okay, it really will go down this time. And hopefully it'll go down below what it was the first time I did this. And, uh, you know, so that's, that's exactly what we've seen from some of these big firms like, ah, these jerks, you know, bought some GameStop and it went up, but that's not going to last. So, you know, we'll just short it again. Oh, crap. And then you short again. And every time you're getting worse over your head, you know, it's like it's like borrowing from one loan shark to pay off the other one. <laughs> <laughs> Although that does seem like it was the smart move because it has dropped significantly. It's it's still like, as we record, ninety two dollars ish. But it did go up to like 350 at one point. Yeah. So if you managed to borrow some shares at 350 and return them at 90, you've probably done okay. But it's mostly a matter of do you have A, the nerve, and B, the, the money and the, the enough margin to cover it to wait out GameStop to go back to what is supposed to be its normal price? Yeah. But, you know, it kind of gets to the other thing we were talking about earlier in the week. It turns out... Each stock issue is kind of like Bitcoin. It's worth whatever somebody will pay you for it. So it doesn't matter that GameStop is not necessarily a company that's going to last very long and make a lot of money. It's just if everybody decides that shares of GameStop are worth $100, guess what? They're worth $100 until they change their mind. What about Robinhood, though, and how they stopped people trading and there was all people including politicians all agreeing that it was terrible but my understanding is that it turned out they have to have a certain amount of capital to cover these trades and they just didn't have that and so they were just covering their ass essentially by not allowing trades that's not the only reason for that the uh, the broader reason that um, that Robin Hood started regulating that and refusing to sell those stocks to those day traders is um the, the FINRA regulations, and I'm not an expert on this, you know, I've, I've talked to some people who know a lot more than I have, and I've read the articles, but it boils down to um, when you are an established brokerage, you have some pretty onerous obligations not to either engage in or facilitate market manipulation. So even though if you're an individual Redditor that decides I'm going to buy GameStonk for the lulls and drive that price up because screw those hedge fund guys and this is hilarious – that's not a problem for you as that individual Redditor or as that group of, you know, thousands of Redditors. But if you're the one firm that all those folks are buying that stock through, you have some really serious potential liability and acting, you know, as a conduit for that potential market manipulation. So in order to protect themselves from, you know, uh, potentially 
having the federal government come down on them like a ton of bricks, uh, Robin Hood said, okay, you know, we're, we're not sure that this is going to be all good. So we're not going to sell you any game stonk guys. And they did that for GameStop and several other stocks that, uh, you know, the Reddit crowd got real interested in. I think AMC and BlackBerry, I think now as of today, they're down to just GameStop and I think AMC that they won't do. Uh, part of that was also the margin requirements, you know, the, the clearing houses that actually deal with the trades after the fact have uh, a requirement that you have at least this much cash on hand with them. Uh, and I know that uh, Robinhood had to go and raise a couple billion dollars really quick to try to cover uh, what they'd already done and try to restrict to keep that from going crazy. But it's really interesting just because so much of Robinhood's business model is actually the people backing them being able to do this kind of market manipulation, not quite to the point that it would be called manipulation. <laughs> yeah, it seems like it's okay for them to do it, but not for a bunch of people on Reddit. Yeah. Part of it where the margin requirements of the clearinghouse and so on, that applied to other brokerages as well. Like I, I know uh, independent brokers, Ameritrade and E-Trade all also end up restricting trading on GME and, and AMC. But I think Robinhood has its own extra special bits in there in at least three different directions between their business model, their funding model, and just wanting to cover the asses of the people that make them money. As far as the earlier point about, uh, you know, whether market manipulation is okay for a hedge fund, but not for, you know, the the little guys, as, you know, people like to say, it's a very, very fair point because, uh, you know, when it comes to shorts in particular, I personally kind of despise short sellers because when you start looking into, you know, stock market stuff and, you know, looking at websites that are all about this and trying to, you know, advise random people, you immediately come across places like Seeking Alpha, which is basically all about somebody saying, oh, this stock is going to suck and you should totally short that. While the site itself is loaded with disclaimers that nothing of this is financial advice and that they almost certainly have financial positions in every single stock they ever talk about. So what it comes down to is when, when you've got a ton of shorting like that, you're artificially driving the price of a stock down so that you can make money off of it. And it turns out that's okay if you're an established brokerage, but when Redditors decide that they want to artificially drive one up or even, even just say punish somebody for trying to do it, which I think is still really a better characterization of how GameStonk got started, is saying, screw those Melvin Capital guys, we want to hurt them. It's not okay for Redditors where it would be okay for a hedge fund. And that stinks. There have been times in the past where all shorting has been suspended uh, because it was just contributing to problems. The one defense of shorting I've heard is that it tends to fund investigations into shady shit happening at companies. For example, the Enron stuff, when that all came out, it was actually because somebody did their research, found out Enron was cheesing up the books, shorted the hell out of it, and then made a big news story out of it. I don't really think that that's a good reason to keep shorting around as a, a concept, though. <laughs> but it's, that's that's the defense that's been coming up is that you know it's the only it's the way the stock market deals with companies being shady is by being able to short it and then point out the shadiness. Well, in theory, shorting is also supposed to do something to mitigate you know further instances of the uh, you know the Dutch tulip problem. When you have shorting around as a market force. It decreases the tendency for people to artificially inflate stocks because, you know, they, they, they're aware that, you know, hey, this this could turn around and bite me. But 
the whole thing's crappy. My my personal feeling is the only way to play with the stock market and you know leave with a clean conscience is just to invest in index funds and walk the hell away. Bet on the entire human race increasing its economic value and leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, or just buy a Tesla and wait for Elon to drive the price up onto it, right? 2.5 admin should not be considered financial advice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash two and a half to get started with $100 free credit. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing enterprise infrastructure, Linode offers simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions that allow you to take your project to the next level. Simplify your cloud infrastructure with Linode's Linux virtual machines and develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and more easily. Linode has 11 global data centers and provides 24-7, 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs, regardless of your plan size. In addition to shared and dedicated compute instances, you can use your $100 credit on S3-compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes, and more. Let us know about the projects you've been using Linode for, and we might mention them on the show. Our website is hosted with Linode, and we're really happy there. So go to linode.com slash two and a half and click on the create free account button to get started. That's linode.com slash two and a half. Let's talk about Parler again, just because it's funny to laugh at them. Well, this isn't even them specifically, right? This is the company behind that they went to for hosting. Yeah. And so DDoS Guard, as they're called, they might well be forced to forfeit quite a lot of IPv4 addresses. Something like three quarters of their whole, uh, all the addresses they announce on BGP at the moment. Yeah. So it turns out, you know, they went to the Latin American uh, NIC to get IP addresses, right? The version of Aaron for Latin America. LACNIC. Yeah, LACNIC. And the, the requirement is that you have a business presence in Latin America and that that's what these IP addresses are for. Well, it turns out they don't even have an office there. They just are incorporated there, right? It's like, you know, a mailboxes, et cetera, or a lawyer's office or whatever. And everything for the company happens elsewhere. Basically, they know how to spell Belize. <laughs> yeah. But there's a couple of people uh, in the, you know, internet research community who like to find these people and make life hell for them. And so they reported them to LACNIC and uh, they are going to have their IPs taken away. And it turns out they're not the only people doing this. There was uh, a related story from, I think, Afrinic a couple of years ago where they found one of the people on the board of Afrinic was basically selling these IPs off to European companies and so on and just keeping the money. And uh, he got found out. And it's pretty common for these, you know, we reserve some block of IP addresses for uh, the rest of the world and then money tends to cause them to be misused. We talked about IPv6 before and how that is very unlikely to catch on anytime soon, but isn't that the solution here? Because the number of IPv6 addresses is just so much larger. Yeah, but people would have to use it. Yeah. A lot of phones do now, and you know some ISPs have it, but it's not really useful until everybody has it. Yeah, and, and hang on, hang on. Let's let's be clear here. Uh, you know, the DDoS guard folks, they weren't getting LACNIC IP addresses because that was the only place they could get IP addresses because IPv4 is scarce. They were doing it because, you know, they're shady jackasses looking to host stuff that nobody wants to be traceable back to them. So, you know, everything is just a nest of fake addresses and shill corporations and every other dodge you can think of all the way down. IPv6 is not going to change any of that because their ultimate need to distance themselves from, you know, the god awful content they're hosting 
is no different under IPv6. The other thing is the part of the reason why they have so many IP addresses and, and have this need is they're trying to prevent those sites from getting blocked because they make their money off the traffic flowing to and from the sites. And so they want to keep them off the block list by changing the IP addresses constantly. I'm always kind of curious of the the timing on these things. Like, you know, I, I don't have any specific reason to believe that I had anything to do with it. But when Parler first got knocked offline and started trying to come back online, I kind of went on a tear on Twitter, like a long detailed thread of looking into their DNS and where that came from. And then when they had a you know landing page up where that was hosted and, you know, doing who is is on net blocks and everything else and, you know, laid it out in a ton of detail. And then a day or two after that, put it in an ours article. And then, you know, like a week or two later, it's like, hey, these guys are about to lose all their addresses because it turns out this giant pack of Russian names <laughs> really aren't, you know, people who are in Belize. And uh, I think Ecuador was the other one. And I always just kind of wonder, like, did I help? <laughs> <laughs> it was either that or someone doing basically that same research themselves. Yeah. Uh, and mostly for the same reason, because fuck those guys. <laughs> fuck those guys. That is the official position of the 2.5 Admins Podcast. Let's do some free consulting then. If you want to send your questions in, the best way is show at 2.5admins.com. And if you want to support creation of these episodes, you can do so on Patreon or via PayPal. Details for that are at 2.5admins.com slash support. And thank you everyone who is supporting us. It's really appreciated. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. So go and check that out. So, Ali writes to us, I always preferred CentOS on the server. I somehow connect with SE Linux and Firewall D more than AppArmor and UFW, or anything that is default in Debian systems. My confusion is what is the difference between IP tables and others, Firewall D and UFW? Are they even comparable and replaceable with each other, or very different things and I'm getting them wrong? When I get a new CentOS VPS, it has IP tables by default, and I install Firewall D myself and enable it. Today, though, I got an error from Linsys saying, IP tables, modules loaded, but no rules active. What am I doing wrong? Should I remove IP tables? Firewall D is depending on it. Should I disable it? I don't know how. Should I configure it to use Firewall D? So IP tables is the underlying firewall technology behind all the packages that you mentioned. Uh, UFW and firewall D are both basically abstraction layers that sit on top of IP tables to prevent you from needing to write IP tables rule sets directly. Because they're terrible to read and write. They're really not. They're not that bad. Yeah, but compared to UFW allow SSH. IP tables allow, you know, source port 22. Oh, God, that was so terrible. Thank God I didn't have to do that. You have to, like, specify a chain, and then you have, like, this other no, thing. No, you don't. And, no, no, no. Okay. You're way out of date. That was IP chains, not IP tables. Yeah, but there, even table still has the, the three different chains or whatever, right? The input, output, and munge or whatever they're called. Input, output, and forward are the uh, three basic tables. But, I mean... One way or another, you're going to have to specify that because they're different operations and you might want to accept for input something to SSH, but, you know, deny for output on the same port or deny forwarding. So you need to be able to distinguish between them. So it's not really an issue. The, the only thing that uh, I, I will actually say is obnoxious in IP tables is uh, if you want to do hairpin NAT, that kind of sucks. Um, if you're not familiar with the term, hairpin NAT basically means I want to set up a rule on my router that forwards everything on port 22 to my local Linux server inside the firewall, right? 
Now, for hairpin NAT, that means even if I'm on my laptop inside the network and I say I want to connect to port 22 on my router's public IP address, that should go out to the router, make a quick hairpin turn, and go right back into the server. Um, that's a very common desire because you want, you know, to say, if if I say sshmyoffice.com, I always want it to work even if I'm in my office. It's a common need. And setting that up specifically in IP tables is obnoxious because you need to make two matching rules in different tables. I don't like that because you can't put everything that you need for the one action, the hairpin net, in one rule. That sucks. But other than that, it's it's fine. So my advice would be, screw UFW, screw FirewallD, just write your rule sets and IP tables and you will have no difficulties. And more flexibility. Although you must be able to do that. I mean, I've only ever used UFW, so... Uh, I don't know, but and I've only ever done really basic stuff with it, but there must be flags and stuff you can add to it to do complicated stuff. Yeah, nobody's saying you can't do complicated things with UFW. The whole point of UFW is, you know, attempting to make doing the complicated things simpler with more human-friendly language. Um, my issue with it is just I don't think IP tables was that hard to begin with. Um, I think it's a mistake to invest in learning a higher-level abstraction of something that wasn't all that hard to begin with. You know, if you don't want to learn C because you don't want to have to write all your own memory management, you know, routines for, you know, what would be a very simple code in a higher level language like, you know, Perl or PHP or whatever, that makes a world of sense. You know, you might end up needing to write a tenth the lines of total code to do the same thing. And if the performance is good enough, well, then great. That was good. You should totally learn your abstracted higher level language. But, you know, when your UFW rule set doesn't really look all that different from your IP tables rule set, and it's not really a big difference in complexity between the two, then in my opinion, it's a mistake to invest your time learning the higher level abstraction rather than learning the thing underneath. It's going to be common, you know, to everything that you touch in the Linux world. I mean, IP tables is part of the Linux kernel. You're not going to get away from that in a Linux distribution. Yeah, and the, the advantage there would be now you know the the base firewall, it'll work on every distro. You don't have the problem of, oh, well, I'm used to this distro, which had this manager, and now I'm on this other distro, has this other manager, and I don't know how to write my firewall rules. It also means when there's a bug in that higher level abstraction, it will not bite you because you haven't abstracted things as far away from the underlying reality. Although the IP table syntax is just evil compared to any of the events I've used elsewhere. It's not. You know, I, I've used, I've used uh, what is it, IPFW on uh, FreeBSD? Like having to do dash P for the protocol instead of having a keyword like proto or dash J for the action. How is J an action? Because you're jumping to a table. To a result in the table. Well, in, in IPFW, if you want to jump to somewhere, it's skip to. I don't know. Sometimes words are better, but... In the end, it's it's all the same shit, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, how terrible saying jump instead of skip. <laughs> what, what you're not saying jump, you're saying dash J. And it's it's actually the action. Alan, how long have you been using Unix-like operating systems and you're not used to like single initial arguments for actions? Come on. Well, no, I'm used to them. I just think that IP tables is, you know. Rabble, rabble, rabble. It's not BSD. It sucks. <laughs> it's not that it's not BSD that makes it suck. It's just the syntax, but... I've done it. it. It's entirely, it's not that hard to do. So I agree with you that just, yeah, it's really not the thing. Somebody's ported some of the BSD ones to Linux at some point. Hell, you can use IPFW on Windows. The main reason to do that is, is the dummy net thing where you can actually do traffic shaping. So like if you need to be like, so how well does this video play back if I, my internet was only one and a half megabits and had, you know, 3% packet loss? The other reason to do that? 
job security. Good luck firing the guy that put in all the BSD style firewalls on the Windows machines. <laughs> <laughs> this is just on one machine. It was just to be able to be like, hey, we need to simulate as if the user was on a satellite internet. And then you can just be like, all right, this much delay, this much packet loss, whatever. Or, you know, it's fast in this direction and slow in that direction or whatever you need to do. Kevin writes in, when using S3 compatible buckets as primary storage, how do I back up to a different provider or to regular block storage? Well, each object could be a file for block storage. For other providers, um, one of the easy answers is something like MinIO, which basically provides an S3 compatible API, but backed by some block storage like ZFS. Or there's tons of places that offer S3 type backups. One of them's named after the Japanese uh, wasabi or something is one of them. I don't know. There's lots of them. Jungle disk. Yeah. Uh, but in general, for backing up with block storage, you just you have to find some way to get a list of all your objects and then you can download them into a directory. Like W could probably handle it. <laughs> just be careful with the your provider doesn't want to charge you uh, a lot of money to download every one of your objects to back them up. Hashtag Glacier. Right. Well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send your questions in. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll be back next week.